This is the Torts Midterm Outline. So first we have Voluntary Act, which is defined as a willful or conscious act. An involuntary bodily movement will not be sufficient to give rise to liability. So any like movements during a seizure, for example, um, would not be considered a voluntary, um, like a willful, willful or conscious act or so like a voluntary act. And then we have intent and intent um, either A, acts with purpose of producing a consequence or B, acts knowing the consequence is substantially certain to result. And so the first case we have is Garrett v. Daly. And the question here was whether a young child pulling a chair out from under an adult can adequately form intent to harm. Um, intent can be established if one knows the risk is associated with their action. A child does not need to have intent to harm, but must have knowledge that their action has risk. The second case we have here is Balu v. Alio. I don't know how to say that. Um, and it's whether the grabbing of a steering wheel immediately upon waking constitutes a as a voluntary action. Um, this was ruled in favor of the defendant, Alio. Um, it said no, there was no volition in an act, in an action completed between immediate time of being asleep and awake. Then we have Spivey versus Bataglia. And the question here was whether the pulling of Spivey's face for an unsolicited hug is action reasonably foreseeable to cause damage. Um, the ruling here was that unintentional negligence as Bataglia did not intend to harm, but the actions were reasonably foreseeable to cause harm. Um, then we have White v. Muniz. And that asks whether a mentally incapacitated person can be held liable for their harmful conduct, um, such as striking another person. Um, a mentally incapacitated, people, incapacitated person can be liable if proven they understood the consequences of their conduct. Um, so then we have single intent, which is the intent to contact that results in harmful or offensive touching. Or you have dual intent, which is in the one jurisdiction is intent to contact or in the second one is intent for contact to be harmful and offensive. Um, and the last case we have here is Altieri versus Colasso. And that is whether damage is reasonably foreseeable from the throwing of a rock into a yard of people. And it was decided that throwing a rock is reasonably foreseeable to cause damage if the defendant has intent to hit a person, but hits to hit a hit person A, but instead hits person B, liability still follows the defendant. So next we have battery, and the definition here is um, an act intending to cause harmful or offensive contact, or contact where harmful or offensive touching directly or indirectly results. Harmful means causes pain or injury. Offensive means Offensive can vary from person to person. Um, you want to think about like what might violate a reasonable person's sense of dignity, given that they are not unduly sensitive. <laughs> um, and then, or un I guess unreasonably sensitive is what was meant there. The first case we have is Lightman v. Um, J-Core Communications. And the question here was whether the intentional blowing of smoke into another's face is offensive as to their reasonable sense of personal dignity. 
And the conclusion here is that it was offensive to their personal dignity and the plaintiff was not found to be unduly sensitive. Oh, I guess unduly sensitive was what we meant earlier. Sorry. Okay. Then we have Wishtonoski versus Huey. And that is whether the abrupt pushing of a door towards another is contact offensive to another sense of personal dignity. So Wichnaski was found to be unduly sensitive as the conduct was rude but not offensive. So here they ruled in favor of the defendant. Then we have Paul V. Holbrook. And that was whether an uninvited attempted massage of another can be considered offensive touching. It was decided that yes, that conduct does, the conduct does not have to be harm to cause harm, but merely be offensive and it, you know, has to be insulting to another person. And the thing they consider here is time and place. And they use that to determine if it, if one is unduly sensitive. In this case, again, it was decided that that person was not unduly sensitive and um, especially considering the fact that Holbrook, the defendant, had previously asked for sexual relations. And the last case we have here is Wallace v. Rosen, and that is whether inevitable contact in a crowded situation, such as a fire drill, can arise to offensive touching. So it was decided that no, some contact is inevitable in a crowded world, which eliminates intent to cause harm from these touchings. Then we have assault. And the definition is intentionally causing the imminent apprehension of harmful or offensive conduct, aka battery. So when we talk about imminent, we mean that there's no time to take action. And when we talk about apprehension, there's, that's, you know, you have to be aware. Um, You have to know that it's coming. So the plaintiff must show that an assault was imminent and that the plaintiff experienced apprehension. And the defendant had the ability to carry out um, the batter. So the first case here is the Western Telegraph Co. versus Hill. And the facts of this case was that the plaintiff went in to get a clock fixed. The defendant was standing behind the counter and made a vulgar comment. He then tried reaching out to her to touch her. The width of the counter would have made it impossible to reach her, but she did not know this at the time. So the issue was, did the man commit assault when he reached over the counter to touch the woman, but was unable to make contact because of the width of the counter? And the holding was that this could have been assault. It was up for the jury to decide, but basically um, there was imminent apprehension, even though she, like it was not possible for him to carry that out, she did not know that it was not possible for him to carry out the battery. Um, then we have Kramer versus Rick Ricksmeyer. The facts of this case is that the plaintiff was suffering from an arthritis attack but was improving. The defendant called her and threatened her about her cows on his land. The call upset her so much that her condition did not improve and she eventually suffered from permanent disability because of it. And the issue here is, did a threat over the telephone cause the plaintiff to feel an imminent apprehension of harmful or offensive contact? And the ruling here... Um, said that words are generally not assault when you are in person because over the phone, two people are so far away, there's no imminent apprehension, so this was not considered to be assault. Next, we have false imprisonment, and this is acts with with the intent to confine a person within the boundaries fixed by the actor. The act directly or indirectly results in confinement. The person is conscious or harmed by the confinement. And the standard for confinement is that it must be complete confinement within the boundaries fixed by the actor. Confinement is complete even with a reasonable means of escape 
unless the other person knows about it. This does not include preventing someone from going somewhere that they have the right to go. There's no minimum amount of time necessary that a person needs to spend in confinement to be considered confinement. And physical force is also not necessary. This can be accomplished by, you know, putting up physical barriers, the threat of physical force or physical force, duress, uh, a false assertion of legal authority. And that is that. Then we have Big Town Nursing Home versus Newman. The facts of this case is that a man with dementia was put in a nursing home. He was never told he was not going to be allowed to leave when he was like signing up to get in the home. Um, so he attempted to leave on six occasions and was brought back each time. The last time he was strapped to a chair, he was not given attention from the doctors um, for like, I think a few days, and he finally escaped and was able to go home. The issue here was whether a plaintiff falsely Im- was falsely imprisoned when he was not allowed to leave the nursing home and placed in a restraint chair. The holding here was that the sim- that there was ample evidence to show that he was falsely imprisoned. Then we have Hardy versus LaBelle's distributing company. The facts of this case, the plaintiff was tricked into going into a room for questioning by their employer after being accused of stealing a watch. She felt compelled to stay despite being told that she was able to leave. There was no threat or force used and she had also stated that she would have gone into the room had she known why they were calling her to go in. The issue here is whether was the plaintiff falsely imprisoned when she was kept in an office by her employer to address theft accusations when she was free to leave when she wanted. The holding was that there was substantial supporting evidence to find that she was not falsely imprisoned. Then we have National Bond Investment Company versus Whithorn. And this was, was Whithorn falsely imprisoned when two repo men attempted to repossess his car with force and the threat of losing his car. The holding was that though he had a reasonable mean of escape, leaving meant he would have lost his property, so he was falsely imprisoned. Then we have Parvey versus the city of Kingston. The issue here is, are the police liable for false imprisonment for arresting Parvey? not leaving him where he requested when they thought Parvey was unconscious. And the holding was that Parvey might have been conscious at the time of this event, so it was false imprisonment. Um, Then we have Schofield versus critical air medicine. And the issue here is, is critical air liable for false imprisonment for fraudulently representing their identity in order to pick up the Schofields and transfer them to a hospital so the Schofields were not, their, their parents were not aware at the time of their travel and the family was looking for the girls. Oh, so the girls themselves are not aware of who was taking them. So the whole thing was that the court did not want to award fraud. And they looked at the harm caused to the family when they thought their children were missing. They concluded that this was false imprisonment. <clears throat> then we have intentional infliction of severe emotional distress. This is extreme and outrageous conduct. And that means it goes beyond all bounds of decency. It's atrocious slash utterly intolerable in a civilized society. It's intentionally or recklessly causing emotional distress and any resulting bodily harm. And it would be so severe that no reasonable person could be expected to endure it. Then we have bystander recovery. 
So um, this is just like who can recover damages by witnessing the intentional infliction of severe emotional distress. So um, members of a person's immediate family, whether or not there is no bodily harm or any present person, if there is bodily harm. The first case we have here is Bowden versus Spiegel. The issue is Spiegel liable for IISED for calling Bowdoin and threatening legal action over a debt that Bowdoin did not owe, leading to Bowdoin suffering physical harm. The holding was that this is IISED. The violent and abusive language led to the emotional distress, which led to the physical illness. Once the wrongful quality is established, it doesn't matter whether it was words or actions. Then we have Slocum versus Food Fair Stores of Florida. The issue here is, can a person be liable for causing severe emotional distress by, in, by using insulting language towards someone with a pre-existing condition? The holding is that meaningless abusive expressions without intention to cause IISED does not arise to IISED, and the defendant must act with the intent to cause the harm. Um, then we have Dornfield versus Oberg, and the issue here is can Oberg be held liable for IISED to Dornfield when he killed her husband with his car and she was present but did not see it? Um, the holding was that a bystander cannot recover if the actor does not intend to cause the result to the third party because it is an intentional tort. Last, we have Taylor v. Vallelunga, and it asks, is a person liable for causing severe emotional distress for beating a person's father in front of them without knowing that they are there to witness it? They, the court held that there was no IISED because the defendant did not know that the daughter was there to witness. And again, going back to the fact that it's an intentional tort. So they would have to know that they're causing this harm to the other person. So, or that they're intentionally acting. Yeah. Okay. Then we have trespass to land and that asks, or that <laughs> definition is a person is liable whether or not there's harm caused to the property. So you would have to enter the land in the possession of another or cause a third person to do so, um, remain on the land and do not remove something from the land, which they have a duty to remove. So any of those things can be considered trespass. And intent to trespass is not required. Again, you only have to be present on land that is not that you that is belongs to someone else. So the first case here we have Doherty versus Step. And the question here was whether breaking the clothes of another's property and entering constitutes a trespass, even if no physical changes were made to the property. Making of physical changes is not necessary for trespass. Only breaking of the clothes to the property, falsely believing to be in possession of the property, or having false reason for being on the property, in not adequate excuse for is not an adequate excuse for trespass. So then we have Heron versus Sutherland, and that is whether Heron can be held liable for trespass for shooting animals above another's property. Um, whether he is liable for fishing in a navigable stream adjacent to the property, the trespass for interference with quiet, undisturbed, peaceful enjoyment of land, 
as one owns rights to, are above and below their property. Um, navigable streams belong to the public. And the last case here is Bradley versus American Smelting and Refining Co. And the question was whether the dispersal of unwanted air particles into another's property is a trespass. Um, trespass as it was reasonably foreseeable for the particles to land in a large area which included the plaintiff's property. Trespass is invasion of another's exclusive possession of property and nuisance is interference in their use and enjoyment and they can occur in the same case. Next we have trespass to chattels. chattels. <laughs> um, it is intentionally dispossessing another of the chattel using an inter or intermeddling with a chattel in the possession of another without consent one intermeddles with the chattel if the chattel is impaired as to its condition quality or value the possessor deprived the possessor is deprived of its use for substantial time or bodily harm is caused to the possessor or harm is caused to some person or thing which the possessor has a protected interest Conversion of chattels is defined as intentional exercise of dominion or control over a chattel which so seriously interferes with the owner's right to control that the full value of the chattel should be paid in damages. To determine the level of interference, consider the extent and duration of the dominion or control, the intent to assert a right consistent with the other's right to control, um, the actor's good faith, um, extent and duration of the result of the resulting interference, the harm done, and the inconvenience and expense caused to the other. The first case we have for this is Glidden versus Sisbiak, and that asks whether a four-year-old girl can be held liable for trespass to chattels where a dog bit her upon the girl's approach. The court concluded that no, a young person cannot form intent to trespass and no harm is done to the dog, which is required for the trespass to chattels. And next we have CompuServe versus Cyber Promotions. And this case asked whether Cyber would be liable for the sending of unsolicited emails to CompuServe, which hindered their ability to do business and lost their customers. Um, it hindered CompuServe's ability to do business and reduce the value of their computer equipment, so they were held liable for trespass to chattels, even though no physical damage was caused. Um, and then we have Pearson versus Dodd, and that is whether Dodd is liable for conversion of chattels for replacing originals of documents without permission. The court decided no, Pearson did not substantially deprive them of their documents and the information on the documents was not costly, nor did it require substantial labor to acquire, um, i.e. It, was it wasn't literary writing or scientific invention. Okay, so next we're getting into affirmative defenses, and this is a type of privilege that provides a person the justification or excuse to act in a certain way under certain circumstances. It will immunize them from legal liability, and the person asserting the defense must have the burden of proving each requisite of that defense. So the first one is consent and the plaintiff's prima facie case is that there will be a voluntary act with the intent to do harm and the plaintiff did not give consent and um, 
the defendant will say that there was a willingness, in fact, for the conduct to occur. This can be manifested by action, inaction, and it does not need to be communicated by an actor. If words or conduct or conduct are reasonably understood by another to be intended as consent, they are apparent con- they are apparent consent, which is just as effective as consent in fact. The first case we have here is Moore v. Williams, and the issue is did the plaintiff consent to the operation on her left ear when she thought she was getting her right ear operated on, and the surgeon made the decision while she was under for that operation. Um, and kind of a, th- a broader category here that the court kind of brought up was, does consenting to surgery on one part of your body mean that you gave consent to get surgery on all parts of your body? And the court held that, no, this was not a life-threatening injury and consent was necessary to operate on the other ear. The next case is Kaufman versus Garnett. And the issue is when signing up to play football, did the 14-year-old boy consent to being tackled by the grown man coach (laughs) and the court held that a jury could find that he did not give his consent to being tackled by the coach and the last case is Hackbart versus the Cincinnati Bengals and the issue raised by this case is by playing professional football does a person consent to contact that is prohibited by the rules of the sport especially those concerning safety the holding here is that he did not consent to contact outside the confines of the rules of the game they did not want to, the court like didn't want to create an environment where the only resolution would be retaliation. The next affirmative defense is self-defense. And it is a, that a person acted with reasonable belief that harm was imminent. They used reasonable force. And reasonable means the amount necessary to protect herself under the circumstances. And it is only, you can only use deadly force if you are confronted with deadly force. So, usually it's understood that deadly force cannot be used preemptively. And when you're talking about the defense of others, or it's also referred to as the Good Samaritan law, it's that when the actor is privileged to defend them, to defend a third, an actor is privileged to defend a third person from harmful or offensive contact, um, any other invasion of interests of personal personality um, under the same conditions and by the same means when they are privileged to defend themselves it must they must reasonably believe that the circumstances are such as to give the third person the privilege of self-defense his intervention is necessary for the protection of the third person and that a reasonable mistake is not permitted though it is permitted for self-defense Mikhail v. Jovnik is the first case. And this issue was, did Jovnik had, have the privilege of self-defense when he punched a boy who had threatened to beat him up minutes before following him off the bus? The holding here is that under the circumstances, punching the boy was a justifiable attempt to repel or prevent imminent bodily harm. They also can considered the fact that this boy was much smaller than the other two boys and especially the one he punched, and there had been, you know, weeks of bullying building up to this incident that, you know, consisted of, you know, verbal threats and actually, you know, physical harm had already been done to the kid, so that's something else they considered. 
Next we have Bradley versus Hunter. And the issue here was, did Hunter, an elderly woman, have the privilege of self-defense with deadly force when Bradley, a 28-year-old man, charged at her after threatening her minutes before? The court found that a reasonable person would have believed that deadly force was necessary to repel the attack in the situation. In this one, they also considered um, Bradley's history. He had, you know, threatened them in the past. He was causing a ruckus. He was known around town and by the hunters to be a violent person. So they took that into consideration as well. Um, then we have Silas v. Bowen. And the issue here was, did Bowen have the right to use deadly force after Silas, a much taller and athletic man, refused to leave his property and then grabbed and threatened him? The holding of this case was, he did have the right to use self-defense with a deadly weapon. In your place of business or home, you are not required to retreat and leave the area. He acted in a reasonable way to repel the apprehended harm. Next, we have the defense of property and the recapture of chattels. Um, so it's required that you use a reasonable force, and that is never deadly force. You ask the plaintiff to cease and desist, if practicable, and it cannot be mis you cannot be mistaken as to the existence of this privilege. So the defendant has the burden to prove that, one, they took prompt action to recover the chattel, two, they used reasonable non-deadly force, and three, demanded the property be returned before using force. Again, that's if it's reasonable to do so. The first case is Kako v. Briney. The issue here is, did Briney have the right to use a trigger gun to protect an uninhabited house? The holding was that deadly force is not allowed in this situation because it was protecting an uninhabited house very far from the house they were living in. The next one is Brown v. Martinez. The issue was Martinez privileged to use deadly force to protect his watermelon crop when boys were stealing the watermelons. The court held that he did not have the right to use deadly force to drive away trespassers um, to protect watermelons or to scare intruders. And the last case for this is Alvarado versus the city of Dodge City. And the issue was whether an agent for a corporation reasonably detained a customer when they believed they witnessed shoes being stolen. The court held that even though the agent was mistaken, they are not liable as they used reasonable force to protect their chattel. And um, for corporations, you're allowed to mistake whether or not you're like allowed to make that mistake where as like regular citizens are not. Next, we have the necessity defense. And this is the right to trespass onto another's property or commit conversion where they face serious bodily harm or loss of substantial property due to threat not caused by the plaintiff. Public necessity is acting in the best interest of the community. And the person who's acting for public necessity is not necessarily going to be liable for damages. When we talk about private necessity, it's when you acted in self-defense or with the interest of a small group and that person will be liable for damages. The first case here, we have Wegner versus Milwaukee Mutual Insurance, and this was whether the police would be liable for damages to a private citizen for the taking of their house in the pursuit of a suspect. The court determined that in the individual police officers are not liable because the police exercised a public necessity, but the city is still liable to the owner of the home. The next case we have is Plouffe versus Putnam. 
And this one asked whether Plouffe can assert the defense of private necessity when Putnam untied Plouffe's boat during a violent storm. There was no trespass, and this actually ended up causing damage to the boat. So the court determined that there was no trespass, and they can use private necessity as the storm threatened the life of Plouffe, and Putnam is liable for untying the boat from the dock. And then we have Vincent versus Lake Erie Transportation, and this is whether Erie is liable for damage caused to Vincent's dock from Erie's boat that was tied to it during, um, during a storm that was not severe enough to threaten Erie's safety. They determined that Erie acted out of private necessity and is liable to Vincent for the damage caused. And the last one we have for today is discipline. And this states that a parent can use reasonable force or impose reasonable confinement upon their child when reasonably necessary for control, training, or education. A person other than the parent can use reasonable force upon a child, but their privilege is limited. Um, and in the case Thomas versus Bedford, a student had come up to a teacher and I think like hit them, like smacked them in the, and like shot a rubber band at them. And the teacher didn't do anything initially, but later, I think about 15, 20 minutes later, called the student out of class and took him into another room where he repeatedly punched him. Um, so the question here was whether a school teacher can hit a student hard enough to leave bruises for flinging rubber bands in the teacher's direction. The court determined that punishment, that the punishment is unreasonable as the teacher used excessive force and administered it after a reasonable cooling off period. Um, so that is what we have for the midterm. Okay, so next there's negligence. So negligence has four um, elements. It's duty, breach, causation, and then damages. So duty is um, generally there's no affirmative duty to act. However, a person is considered to have acted negligently when she creates an unreasonable risk of harm or they fail to use reasonable care. Um, the, there are a few standards to determine what reasonable care is. Um, that can be the reasonably prudent person. So you'd have to ask what would a reasonably prudent person have done under the circumstances. You would look at custom. So this could be any kind of custom, but generally this has to do with industry standards. So if you're talking about like a case with giant shipping um, like cargo, you would talk to like the captains of those ships. You wouldn't use like a reasonably prudent person for like a, like a regular person. Um, judges can set their own standards. So this is like when there's no room for a reasonable person to differ, the judge can set the standard. Um, and then statutes. So judges can use statutes that were not intentionally made for civil court under the following circumstances. So one, the statute states a rule of conduct with enough specificity that a jury could devise a reasonably a reasonable person standard from the statute. Two, the plaintiff is in the class of persons the statute was intended to protect. Three, the interest invaded is none that the statute was meant to protect. Uh, four, the risk that materializes in harm is a risk that statute was meant to avoid. So in these situations, the jury would still need to decide if the standard was violated. Okay, so we get to limitations on duty. And um, there are a few cases here. So the first is Hegel versus Langsam. 
And the facts here is a girl goes to university. She gets into a like legal trouble um, and issues with drugs. Um, the parents file a suit saying that university had a duty to control her. <clears throat> and it was held that the university did not have a duty to make sure that the kids behaved in a way that their parents would like them to behave. Um, they, you know, they were absent for the dormitories. This was like not their job to like control her. Um, <clears throat> then you'd have to ask when there is a duty to act. You'd look at a few factors. So foreseeability of harm is one of them. So foreseeability also comes under proximate cause, which is the Paul's Griff case is a concept. Um, and these judges say that foreseeability runs throughout whether we think people should be held negligent. So it can be considered in like a lot of different factors. So you'd have to look at the closeness. You could also look at the closeness of the connection between the defendant's conduct and the harm suffered by the plaintiff, the moral blame attached to the defendant's conduct, how much burden it would be to make the defendant provide a safer environment by assisting them, um, concern about future harm and letter of insurability. AKA is there insurance that could pay for that. So we have JR versus Smith and the facts here are that two girls were going to a neighbor's house to play with horses. The owner started abusing them. The mom of the girl, one of the girls sues saying that the wife of the man, um, should have known about it. Um, they argued that she had no duty to act and it was held that it was foreseeable that she knew or should have known that, um, she should have had a duty to act in that situation. Um, and that there's no, <laughs> so this kind of goes down to there's no duty to act except when there is a duty to act. So we have rescue. So if the defendant created the harm or peril and didn't remove the risk of harm, then they have a duty to rescue. So the first case that comes into this is Tubbs versus Argus. And the facts here, so the plaintiff was a passenger in the car. Um, the driver gets into an accident and he just leaves the plaintiff in the car, even though the plaintiff was injured. So Argus's argument here was that there was no economic relationship between the parties. He hadn't been paid yet. The court held, doesn't matter. If you created the peril, you're responsible for getting them out of the peril. It was decided in favor of the plaintiff. Then we have the Good Samaritan Law. So you can be absolved of liability when A, or yeah, A, you have no duty to act, B, you choose to act, and C, you behaved reasonably. So the first case here is the Octillo, I think the only case here actually, is the Octillo West Joint Venture versus the Supreme Court for the, Mar for the County of Maricopa. So two men were driving, were golfing, one of them got really drunk. The employees at the golf course took away his keys. After the friend pressured, um, after, after the drunk guy's friend assured him that he would drive the drunk person home, the employees gave the keys to this friend. The friend, they, they walked back to the parking lot and the friend gave the keys back to his super drunk friend. That man ended up getting on in a car accident on the way home and ended up dying. His family sued the golf course for over-serving him. Um, and, you know, probably him versus the friend because he had... It was a business. They had more money. They're likely to be insured. Um, however, it was held that the business was not liable. They took reasonable steps to prevent him from driving home. They only returned the keys to him when there was an assurance that his friend would take him home. And the Good Samaritan law applies here because they had no duty to act. They could have just let him go. Once they did act, they, you know, engaged in rescue and created a duty. However, they behaved reasonably because they took the keys away and ended up only giving them to a sober friend. So then you can have special relationships. So that could create a duty. So do the plaintiff and defendant have a special relationship? 
Does one party owe an obligation to another party? For example, here, that would be a parent and a child or a doctor and a patient or an attorney and a client. Um, the case we have here is Tarasoff versus Regents of University of California. So the facts here, a man told his therapist that he was going to kill his girlfriend. The therapist told the police but took no other action. He ended up killing his girlfriend. The family sues the therapist for not warning her about the harm. Um, the holding was that there was no duty to warn or there was a duty to warn. Um, you know, you could consider foreseeability. It was very serious consequences. Um, it's foreseeable to the therapist that the girlfriend was really in danger. Um, and it was negligent not to tell her that she was in danger. So we have breach and here under this is proof of negligence. So failure it's a failure to meet the standard of care. So you have a burden of production, which is the inference that can be made that the defendant breached the applicable standard of care. And the burden of persuasion is that the jury is persuaded that more likely than not, that's the standard here for negligence, more likely than not, the preponderance of evidence that the defendant breached. So basically like over 51% chance that they breached. Um, you can do circumstantial evidence. It can can a lay person understand the inference? So some evidence is within common knowledge. Some evidence is not within common knowledge. This is when you would bring in an expert to testify. So then we have res ispa loquitur, which means the thing speaks for itself. So this is when there's exclusive control by the defendant. Exclusive control by the defendant is followed by some courts, but not others. What types of cases use res ipsa loquitur? So traditional approach steps. One, ordinarily occurs because of the negligence by somebody in the defendant's position. Two, there's exclusive control by the defendant. And three, the plaintiff did not contribute to the injury. Um, what we get into later, like um, via contributory negligence. Um, so the first case here is Goddard versus Boston and Maine Railroad Company. The court decided that it's not the fault of the defendant because... Um, they had seen that a banana peel had been dropped. Okay, so this case, basically, a man was walking down um, a train a train um, station area, and there's a banana peel on the ground, and he slips and falls on it, and um, believe in this case, the banana, someone, someone had, a witness had said the banana peel looked like fresh and clean, so they said that this is not the fault of the railroad company because you know, how are they reasonably supposed to be around everywhere all the time picking up people's trash? Um, but then there's a case called Anjou versus Boston Elevated Railway Company. And here there was a banana peel. Witnesses said the banana peel was there and had been like stomped all over. So one could assume that banana peel had been there for hours. Uh, and the court decided <clears throat> that leaving that banana peel there was negligence because it appears the banana peel had been there for a while. They had a duty to keep and maintain like a safe premises. That was their job. Um, then we have the Larson, Larson versus St. Francis Hotel. In this case, someone threw a chair out of the window and hit a pedestrian walking below. Um, it would be like nearly impossible to say who threw it, so they would have to use circumstantial evidence. And the court asked who's liable in this case. Um, the holding is that um, res ispa doesn't apply here because the chair is not in total con the <laughs> the hotel is not in total control of the chairs the hotel did not breach a duty of care by having chairs in the room and windows that open it is not within the purview of the hotel to keep people from throwing chairs out the window 
with ordinary course of business, a hotel cannot be responsible for this, especially since it wasn't like a hotel employee, at least that we know of. <laughs> um, then we have Escola versus Coca-Cola Bottling Company of Fresno. Um, in this ca- case, the waitress was holding a bottle of Coke and it broke in her hand. She clearly had no direct evidence of the bottling defect, but you can assume that a bottle should not explode in your hand. You don't have to see a manufacturing process to know that a bottle shouldn't break in your hand. Manufacturing plant is in exclusive control of this. So the court decided that um, Coke is liable. Um, Distributors might be kind of in the line along, like for liability, but they're not doing anything that would make the bottles explode. Um, The bottle was defective when it left the plant. And um, the court here relaxes the exclusive control standard. Um, then we have Ibarra versus Spangard. And in this case, the plaintiff goes in for an appendectomy and wakes up with an injured shoulder. Um, they clearly would not know who injured their shoulder because they're knocked out. However, they do know that there's a team of doctors and one of them, if not all of them, caused the injury. Um, it was held that everyone on the team is liable. The only way this could have happened was during the surgery. The team is all connected and observes each other. If one person on the team does not speak up, then they are all held liable. The plaintiff was in the exclusive control of the defendants. So the commentary is that if there are multiple tortfeasors, they can rat each other out. Or maybe they don't truly know. But when it comes to protecting the plaintiff or the insurance company, they choose to protect the plaintiff. This is because this case has been pretty limited Um, This case has been pretty limited to the context of medical teams because of the plaintiff versus physician, physicians usually insured. Um, Then we have causation, which is the but-for test, which always makes me laugh a little bit. Um, Okay, so the but-for test is but for the defendant's negligence or breach of duty, the plaintiff would not have been harmed. There has to be, it has to be related to the action or the negligence that, like the conduct, the party's conduct is a cause and fact of an event. If the event would not have occurred, but for the conduct, conversely, the defendant's conduct is not a cause of the event if the event would have occurred without it. Um, so there are three situations to consider here. So the first typo is that if you have two fires, each set negligently, they both hit a house, they would cancel each other out and the plaintiff would not be able to recover. Here, the but-for test is too rigid, so they need to both be held liable. In hypo 2, you have two fires. One is set negligently, the other is not. They both reach and burn a house. The one that is not negligently set, there is, you know, the one that's not negligently set, they will not be held liable. They will only hold the starter of the negligently started fire liable. Even though it's not negligently set, it would have destroyed the house anyway, So why hold the negligent person liable? Um, That's because you want to control social behavior. In hypo three, you have a sequential cause. You have sequential causes. So preemptive causation. So the negligently set fire, one, arrives first and destroys the house. Later, negligently set two fire arrives and would have destroyed the house, but the house had already been destroyed. One fire starter is not liable here. Um, Here, there's nothing to actually compensate for. They did not cause or influence anything in any way. But again, we want to control social behavior, so that's not a great thing. So the first case here is Gentry versus Douglas Herford Ranch. So a person's on a ranch. The ranch was not taken care of. Um, 
a visitor of the ranch tripped and accidentally fired their gun and shot a woman. So the woman's husband sued the ranch owner. The court concluded that the ranch is not liable because it's actually the shooter. Um, there wasn't a duty to take these extra precautions so that so they didn't really actually fail to exercise reasonable care. The shooter was not really being careful. He was walking around with a loaded gun. The event could have occurred without it because of the way he was handling the gun. So then you have the substantial factor test. um, And that is, was the defendant's conduct influential in some way? This is very vague. Um, And then it's also, you can have complex causation, which is when you have multiple tortfeasors acting in the same way that could make them liable. Um, Intermediate causes is when you cannot prove which tortfeasor caused the tort. So Summers versus Tice, there are three people hunting. Defendant one, defendant two, each shoot at a bird, but the plaintiff ends up getting shot in the face. They're going back and forth about who shot the bullet that caused the damage. The plaintiff does not know who actually fired the shot that hurt him. Defendant cannot say, neither defendant can say whether or not they didn't do it. Um, So they can't prove that either is the but-for cause. The court held that they're jointly liable because if not, they both get off. Um, and they're both, so they're both held liable for the plaintiff, plaintiff's damage, and neither can exonerate themselves. So under joint and several liability, um, each defendant is liable to the plaintiff as if they were the sole wrongdoer. Each defendant is actually liable to the whole amount to make the plaintiff whole. So joint tortfeasors are two or more defendants engaged in a joint enterprise. Independent tortfeasors is when they're liable for a single theoretically indivisible harm. A single harm is a theoretically divisible, but practically indivisible. So then we have Sindel versus um, Abbott Labs. So a pregnant woman was given a drug to prevent miscarriage. It ended up causing a specific cancer in the woman's babies. As a plaintiff, um, the, the holding here is that the drug caused this problem. Um, and then in an extension of Summers versus Tice, it was, I'm so confused here. Okay. So there were a few companies giving these pregnant women drugs to prevent miscarriages and it ended up causing a really specific cancer in the women's babies later on in life. It it like exposed their, um, the babies that they were pregnant with to cancer, um, to the probability of cancer later in their life. And so um, the drugs cause this problem in an extension of Summers versus Tice. They're like, look, it's between one of you two companies. You don't get to blame each other to escape liability. Um, so each defendant was held liable to the plaintiff because the plaintiff can't know who harmed her. Um, they're all held joint and severally liable. Their proportion of the damages will be based on the market share of like at the time. So if one company had a bigger market share, then they're going to pay a higher proportion of the damages. So there are criticisms of the Sindel case and that some manufacturers who make the drug might be out of business. The rest of the manufacturers will have to pay a bigger share to, you know, some of the manufacturers at the time um, might be out of business. Um, They'll have to pay a bigger share than what they're actually accountable for. Manufacturers who did not actually give the drug to that mom might have to pay And not all of the children of the moms who took this drug developed the cancer. So then we have proximate cause. And here that is 
um, very closely linked to duty. It's despite being under causation. Um, but they put it here because reasonable people can disagree about who you have a duty to. Duty is a question of law for the judge to decide and causation is a question of fact for the jury to decide. They want the jury to decide this. So proximate cause on a limit is a limitation on liability. It operates as a limitation on the defendant's liability. There's no single formulation. It's in complex or unusual situations. The first test is basically, was it foreseeable? And the second test is, was the harm within the risk? So this is kind of wrapped up in foreseeability. Um, the subsequent act of a third party, like is the subsequent act of a third party, that is the immediate cause of the harm. But the, for the original tortfeasor, is also the cause of the harm is this type of situation where some sort of injury would happen as a result of the action being taken. So for example, if you're parked in front of a fire hydrant and your car gets hit, that's not within the risk of parking in front of a fire hydrant. Um, the risk would more be like, would be more along the lines of blocking the fire hydrant and the building burning down. So then you have complex or unusual situations so in terms of remoteness and time or space, is it foreseeable that an action would cause harm the more remote in time or in space you are from the event? And you would looking at it, you would look at intervening or superseding causes. <coughs> oh my god. Okay, so the first case we have for this is Palsgraf versus Long Island. So in this one, a woman's standing on a train deck and a man is helping another man onto a moving train. He drops a box of fireworks and they explode and hurt the woman. And the whole thing is that the train company is not liable for helping the man onto the platform. Um, then we have Deirdrian versus Felix Contracting Corporation. So a driver has a seizure and careens into a work site. He ends up having boiling liquid spilled all over him and he lives. The driver knew that he had epilepsy and did not take his medication. The driver is the but-for cause because he hit the pedal, but was this foreseeable? So not taking your meds, having a seizure, crashing your car, the driver's negligent. But also not having barriers, not having multiple people watching the site, properly sealing next to the roadway, could lead, it is foreseeable that an accident might happen and a car would drive off into the workspace. So the company, the court held that the construction site also has a duty to take these precautions because one could not have happened without the other. You're running a work site near a roadway. You should be worried about a car driving off. This superseding or intervening cause does not absolve them of liability. So then we have damages, which is just harm. So generally we don't calculate this, um, but we do have a few cases that look at like whether or not recovery should be allowed. So that's what I'll go into here. So we have prenatal injury and should recovery be, be allowed. So the general rule is that duty in a prenatal injury requires foreseeability that the action will injure the inf infant, even though an unborn fetus is not a descendant. So this poses philosophical and moral questions. Um, medical malpractice is professional negligence. If a defendant's negligent negligence injures an otherwise healthy fetus, can the infant on birth pursue a negligence action? Historically, this is a question raised. This question raised a hurdle on 
Um, so can duty be imposed? When talking about foreseeability in the context of Renslow, we address the intervening or supervening event, the causation in the time and space. Sorry, this is all under duty. So we have Bombrex versus Cots. Um, the facts here is that a doctor pulled a baby out too early and the baby had issues but lived. Um, so the holding is the infant after birth can sue for negligence for the actions from before birth. Then we have Endres versus Feinberg, Fried, Friedberg. So the woman was pregnant with twins. She gets into a car accident. That's not her fault. The twins are stillborn. The family sues the, for recovery of damages. The holding is that they were never born alive. So the mother and father can sue for their own injuries, but they have no independent cause of action for the kids. So we have Renslow versus the Mennonite Hospital. In this case, a woman received the wrong kind of blood transfusion when she was 13. At the time, it was known that the wrong kind of blood would cause issues with pregnancy in the, if the woman were to get pregnant later. Um, it's also something that's super treatable, and they did not tell her that she got the wrong kind of blood transfusion, even though they knew. So when she was older and had kids, um, her baby had a really bad complica- had really bad complications. So the issue here was were the actions when the actions have happened long before the pregnancy, can the child recover? The holding from Endra, like Endra says that you can't recover if you're stillborn. Here they reject that analysis. They say that the harm here is foreseeable, and foreseeability drives so much of duty. The dissent, though, says that this is a can of worms we cannot contain. Liability must stop somewhere. They're just basically saying, like, when does it end? <laughs> like, this is years later. Um, anyway, then we have wrongful life and wrongful birth. So wrongful birth is when parents claim for damages due to negligently caused birth of an unhealthy child. The debate centers on whether the birth of a child is a a compensable harm because the doctors took away their decision to terminate the pregnancy. This usually, these claims usually come from negligent genetic counseling or some sort of misdiagnosis of a condition of a fetus. Um... Then we have Berman versus Allen, and in this case, the parents were getting medical care during the pregnancy. At the time, they tested, generally, doctors would test amniotic fluid, which would give genetic information of the child, and also the older you are, the more likely you are to have genetic abnormalities. Um, the The parents were not informed of this test, and their child was born with Down syndrome. They sued for wrongful birth because they had gotten the, if they had gotten the test, they could have terminated the pregnancy. Um, They want damages for the extra cost of raising a baby with Down syndrome, and they want damages for losing their right to an abortion. Um, It was held that they do not want to say that life, being born is a compensable harm. Um, Our country is founded on the sanctity of life, lol. Um, It would be difficult to calculate these damages, but they do award additional medical damages for wrongful birth but no damages awarded for wrongful life. So then we have, okay, so this case is inconsistent with Renslow because they do award damages to the mom, but not to the baby. Wrongful birth is the mechanism for getting the money in these extra, of these extra costs. So then we have Turpin versus Sortini. And in this case, The parents have one child who they are assured is not deaf by the doctors. Um, It turns out the child is deaf and this condition is hereditary. Um, But based on the assurance that their child was hearing, they had another baby who ended up having the same hereditary deafness. 
they sued because they, had they known, they would have, you know, maybe not have had another child. Um, And the child sues for having these extra damages. So it was held for the wrongful life claim that in... <clears throat> they they bring up that in comas, the law recognizes that life is not always better than non-life. We can acknowledge that there are extra expenses for the life of a deaf child, and you should be compensated for those expenses. So I think in this case, this is where, um, okay, just kidding, we get to that later. So then we have Scholl versus Reed and the facts here. So Scholl versus had CMV, which is a, um, an illness that causes so many issues with babies. Um, her baby ended up dying and the parents sued because they would have terminated the pregnancy had she been diagnosed with CMV. Um, so the parents got the money in that case. Um, then we talk about wrongful life. So <clears throat> it's a negligently caused birth of an unhealthy child. It can be bought, brought by a person of majority age. So you have to, in like our situation, you have to be over 18. It's very controversial it's not available in all jurisdictions because it's difficult to calculate damages because how do you calculate the value of life versus not life? Um, generally, you allow recovery for extraordinary damages um, that A, they incurred as a result of physical disability, and it's only available to the extent that they are not recovered by the parent in a wrongful birth claim. So there's no double dipping here. The funds can't overlap. Um, <clears throat> then you have a negligent infliction of emotional distress. So the cause of action for an IED is that it is not a result of physical injury. Um, so it's not all losses result in liability, though. So there's no affirmative duty to not cause emotional distress, um, except in certain situations that, like, such as the mishandling of a corpse. We kind of went over this in, I believe it was contracts, where, like, if you, if you know that a situation is likely to cause somebody emotional damage, emotional stress, there's not really a duty for this. So this is not the issue of separate damages are available. Um, there are separate damages available for pain and suffering. Um, all of these cases are worried about opening the floodgates to litigation. So it's more flexible as opposed to physical injury. So how do you separate the claims that should be entitled to recovery versus those that shouldn't be? So one of the first tests of that is the bystander test or to, for looking at like bystanders of, bystanders of different events. So the first test there is the zone of danger. So the person is not physically injured, but they're within the zone where they could have been injured. Um, so this is if you are, you know, walking down the street, holding the hand of your child and your child gets hit by the car, but you don't. And you, you, so you could have been injured. You're within that zone of danger. You just happen not to get hurt. Um, then there's the Dillon rule, which they talk about proximity, visibility, and the relationship. Um, and then there's fear of future injury. So, for example, if you have contaminated drinking water, um, some courts allow recovery for this, some courts don't. So in Dillon versus Leg, the case, so a man was driving a car, a woman and her two daughters were walking near. He ends up hitting one of the daughters in front of her mother. The court held that the mother got to recover. There's foreseeability that in the man's action that, you know, it would cause emotional distress to the mother. And they here they reject the zone of danger um, because they felt that the mom would not have been able to recover based on the zone of danger. And that's flipping horrible. So 
Then you have Daly versus LaCroix. And in this case, a man drove off the road and hit a power line, which caused an explosion. This caused a lot of property damage and an electrical line flew into the victim's house and, you know, like really scared them. So I think it caused like a lot of damage as well. So the holding, can the defendant foresee that the plaintiff will react that way? So the court says everyone reacts differently. You have to take the plaintiff as you find them. It doesn't matter if they're extra sensitive. So this is a direct case. Then we have Thing versus Lachusa. The facts here is that a boy gets hit by, he's, you know, he's, gets hit by a car by Lachusa. The mom becomes aware of the accident and rushes over, finds her son lying on the ground. This is obviously something that's super traumatizing. Um, the whole day, the court found though, they think that she should be able to recover, but it does not meet the limited elements of the Dillon rule. Um, there are complaints about the Dillon rule that foreseeability needs to be understood differently because it's too limited and the mom does not recover because she did not visibly see the actual accident. (coughs) Oh my God. Okay. Then we have Burgess versus Superior Court of Los Angeles County. And the fact here is that a woman goes into labor after the doctor artificially breaks her water. The baby suffers injury and the baby ends up dying later because of complications. The mom was knocked out because of meds, so she didn't see the injury happen. Um, The lower court held that because of lack of visibility, the mom loses. Um, The holding, though, was that of the upper, the higher court, is that the doctor took away the opportunity for her to see the harm because he had medicated her. Um, They did not even consider this to be a bystander case because the doctor has a duty of care to the mom. This is a direct relationship and the doctor is supposed to look out for the, both the mom and the baby. So then we have contributory negligence. So we're getting to the end here. Um, And this is that the defendant must prove that the plaintiff themselves was negligent. So the plaintiff was negligent to themselves. They didn't exercise reasonable care. They have to act, they have to have the facts to prove duty, breach, causation, harm, and damages. So if you want to say contributory negligence, you have to bring up a legit negligence claim. And if they do, then the plaintiff is completely barred from recovery. It's a really harsh effect. It lets the negligent defendant off the hook, off the hook, and it does not have a deterrent effect, which is generally the rule of torts or the goal of torts is to control social behavior. Um, so the exceptions here are the last clear chance rule. Um, and if the negligent defendant had the last clear chance to avoid the defendant and they didn't do so, they pick up liability. There are problems with this application. Um, we want people to not act negligently in the first place. And then, you know, what does clear mean? So the Butterfield versus Forrester case was a man was speeding down the street. Another man left an obstruction in the road. The driver hit the obstruction and suffered damages. So holding, the speeding man could not recover because he was driving negligently. So Davies versus Mann. A man had a donkey feeding on the side of the road with his front legs tied up. Another man was speeding down the road and hit and killed the donkey because the donkey wasn't able to run away. So the holding was, even though the first man was negligent in leaving the donkey, the other man had the last clear chance to avoid the harm. 
He did not avoid the accident, so the donkey owner was not barred from recovery. So here, the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority versus Young. So a man was riding his bike and pulled up to the right side of a bus. The bus was in the left lane and made a right turn, hitting the bicyclist. So he ended up suffering a lot of injuries. The rule here is even if just 1% of negligence in the situation will bar you from recovery, unless you have the last clear chance to avoid the harm. The plaintiff was in a position um, was in a position of danger because of both the plaintiff and the defendant. The plaintiff was oblivious to the danger or unable to extricate themselves from the danger. Um, the defendant was aware, should have been aware, because of a reasonable care. It's their job when you're driving a bus. And the defendant, with means... Um, of available to him could have avoided injury to the plaintiff after becoming aware of the danger and the plaintiff's inability to remove himself from it but failed to avoid the harm they found that because the bus they found the bus to be okay so then we have comparative negligence <clears throat> and this replaces contributory negligence um, a way to remember that is contributory has a b in it comparative has a p in it and b comes before p in the alphabet um but plaintiff's recovery here is reduced by the amount of negligence that is attributed to the plaintiff so there are three different kinds or there, i mean there's there's two different kinds um with subsets between within one of them so you can have pure negligence which is when there is a complete bar to recover um there's never a complete bar to recovery so if the plaintiff is 99% negligent and the defendant is 1% negligent, the plaintiff will still be able to recover that 1%. Um, and then that's in New York. Um, and then there's modified. So a plaintiff's negligence is a, if the plaintiff's negligence is as great as or more than the defendant's negligence, then the plaintiff does not um, recover. So the Arkansas law is that the plaintiff's negligence, if it is 50% or more, then they are barred from recovery. So if the plaintiff's um, negligence reaches 50%, they cannot get recovery. It has to be less than 50%. In Minnesota, it has to be 51%. So they can be it can be 50-50 um, in that case, or in that state, and they're not barred from recovery. So 51% or higher, then they don't get to recover anything. So the issue here, and also for both of these, um, you still recover, like, the portion that you were negligent, so, or that the other person was negligent, so, um, you still take that into account. So, um, this is tough because you might think the plaintiff is 55% negligent, but you don't want them to be barred from total recovery, so this is, like, the jury could be thinking this, and so they decide to say okay, they're only 48% liable. Um, and some form of these laws have been adopted in 46 states. Um, okay, so we have Lee versus Yellow Cab of Cab Company of California. So in this case, the plaintiff was driving and trying to cross <laughs> three lanes of traffic. Um, she did not attempt to avoid any incoming traffic. So when she made the turn, the defendant was a cab driver and he was speeding. So they ended up hitting each other. Um, she should not have turned, but he also should not have been speeding. So the holding here was um, they adopted a peer system. Um, they felt that if this was contributory negligence, then she would not have been able to recover at all. Um, the court decides to use comparative negligence um, 
because again, going back to the all or nothing for contributory negligence, um, they did find some hurdles. Um, you know, the jury might find it difficult to attribute negligence in the amount, um, this is also getting rid of the last clear chance law because a, I mean, a, it's hard to get rid of, it's hard to determine the last clear chance and B, um, you have to also look at the fact that because both parties are negligent, but you're giving all the damages to one party in the last clear chance law. Um, in this case, they weren't even sure that the judicial branch could even do this. Um, they felt that the civil code did not specifically exclude them from doing this. So they went ahead with it. Um, and then we have McIntyre versus Ballantyne. In this fact, or in this case, both drivers had consumed alcohol. Um, both drivers had some fault in this car accident that happened. The holding was that it could make it a bit difficult to apportion damages when you have multiple defendants, but you don't know who the actual tortfeasor was. Um, so this kind of goes back to the hunting case where they both shoot their guns. They don't know who actually shot him. Under this approach, joint and several liability becomes obsolete. Um, okay, then we have Wassel versus Adams. In this case, a woman was in her hotel room sleeping. She heard a knock at the door and thought it was her boyfriend, so she opened the door. A man came into her room. He spent some time in her room, like in her bathroom, um, and then eventually sexually assaulted her. The hotel um, should have warned her of this. They they had kind of in the past warned other people that it was dangerous to like walk around the street. Um, in the lower court they found that she was negligent 97 percent in like letting this man into her room and like not trying to run away and um the hotel was negligent three percent for not warning her or not taking other precautions and this three percent that she recovered was magically the cost of her therapy that she needed um so the holding here um they're not going to upset the jury decision based on the facts presented to them. The hotel didn't want to warn everybody who came across their path because they didn't want to lose business. They didn't want to lose money. Um, the woman said they could hire a security guard. They could have had better locks. They could have had telephones within the rooms or emergency call buttons. Um, this case shows one of the problems, though, because how do you assign fault? Um, but the judge says that the jury can decide to do that if that's what they want to do. Okay, so we have assumption of risk, um, and you could either have express assumption of risk or implied assumption of risk. Um, under express assumption of risk, a party contractually agrees in advance to waive the right to bring a tort claim for negligence. It's often a valid contract. Um, an example of this is like a concert or an airplane ticket. Um, it can be invalid if it violates public policy. So, for example, you can't claim you can't waive a medical malpractice claim. So you can't sign a contract. It would not be a valid contract if it said that, you know, no matter what happens in the surgery, even if I act negligently, I'm not going to be held liable. Um, so then we have the first case here is Johnson versus New Inc. Um, the facts are that the woman signed a contract waiving a claim to negligence for bindings that she had purchased for new boots. They were ski boots. Um, and she ended up getting injured because the bindings didn't release at the right time. Um, and she wanted to sue the court upheld the contract and she was unable to sue. Um, then we have Moore versus Hartley motors. And in this case, a woman took an ATV course. Uh, she signed a liability waiver 
releasing the ATV course people from liability of the inherent risks that come with ATV riding. She ended up going off course. There was a rock in the grass and she was injured by this rock. Um, she, it was held that the contract was valid, but the negligence that occurred was outside the scope of the contractual provision. So she had argued that they were negligent. They didn't warn her about the dangers of the course. They didn't have a safer course. And those were not within the inherent risks of riding an ATV. Okay, so then we have the implied assumption of the risk. And there are two forms here. So you can have primary or secondary. The primary is when there was no duty or there was no breach of a duty. So the example here is that if you're sitting at a baseball game and you get hit by a baseball, you assumed the risk. The stadium is not liable because the owner either didn't have a duty or if there was a duty, it wasn't breached because you still chose to sit there. So the secondary is almost a subset of comparative or contributory negligence. Um, The plaintiff took some sort of unreasonable risk. As a result, they are comparatively or contributorily negligent and they don't get to recover. Um, Again, so those are different because in the primary, you're looking at duty. Did they have a duty to you or was there no breach of that duty? And then secondary is looking at comparative or contributory negligence. So how did you participate in this? It's kind of hard to flush this out. So be careful on the test when you're looking at that. Um, and then there's also this rule of conscious and reasonable risk-taking. An example of this is going to be the fireman's rule. Um, so if a fireman goes into a fire that was negligently set, they can't sue the negligent homeowner because they know that as a fireman, that's part of their job. This is applicable to any similar job. Um, and we did not have a case for this um, in class. Okay, so the case, the next case is Murphy versus Steeplechase Amusement Company. Um, the facts here, the, the, this man and woman are watching this escalator ride called the Flopper while they're at an amusement park. Um, it, the, the ride, you know, made people flop around, bounce around. So they, after watching people, they decided to go on it themselves and the man ended up injuring his knee and he tried to sue The court here said that this was a primary assumption of risk. He assumed the risk um, because of the name of the ride, because they saw what the ride did to people, and because of the nature of the park that they were at. So he did not get to sue. Then we have Avila versus Citrus Community College. So in this case, Avila was playing a baseball game, and the other pitcher threw a ball that hit him in the head, I'm pretty sure. And he sued everyone. He sued the community college. He sued the other team's coaches. He sued his coaches. He's trying to sue sue everybody. Um, And eventually ended up getting narrowed down to just the school. So um, he, you know, he was arguing that they had a duty to protect him. Um, And the community college said that getting hit with baseball is the inherent risk of playing baseball. And the court ended up ruling in favor because of that comment. Um... They said that he was barred from recovery because of a primary assumption of risk. So the last case that we have is McGrath versus American Cyanamid Company. Um, in this case, a man was walking across a catwalk for work. The planks upended and he fell off and died. It wasn't his construction company that set up the bridge, so his family sued for wrongful death. The trial court rules in favor of the plaintiff. 
and it gets appealed. So um, the court held that this is a secondary case, so he was contributorily negligent. Um, Just because you're working doesn't mean that you should behave unreasonably. The dissent here did argue that you shouldn't that this shouldn't even be a thing because, again, you're going back to contributory negligence, which bars him from recovery, and that sucks because, again, we want to control social behavior, which you can't do if you're barring an, if you're barring somebody from recovery just because they were negligent. Um, and that's the end of the outline.